The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you tonight. It's always nice to just have a sense of, I guess, both how unusual and, I mean, it's a provocative word to say something like sacred, but it's nice for a group of people to gather like this and to sit in silence. There's something really grounding and safe about an experience like this. So I just want to acknowledge that, just how unusual it is and how right it feels to have that shared quiet together. And I think part of the reason it stands out for us is, I mean, shockingly, you know, we it's not shocking that we have a mind, but it's shocking that given that there is this thing we call the mind, it's really shocking how little interest we've had, generally speaking, over the years. Like, I mean, you know, in all of your teen years and all of your those of you who are older than your 20s, you know, how many moments did you actually go, oh, wow, there's a mind here. I should probably pay attention. <laughs> you know, like, get interested in the mind. I mean, we do get interested in our fingernails and we get interested in, you know, all kinds of relatively trivial things. But it's just interesting how little direct interest there's been in our lives where we've used the mind to look at the mind, to open to the mind, to be aware of the mind, to study the mind. Even though, upon reflection, it's pretty obvious to us that the mind is pretty central to whatever it is that's unfolding for us, the amount of stress, the amount of happiness that we experience in life how the mind is, how the mind is relating, the qualities of the mind, it's pretty relevant. But yet it hasn't been something we've studied. And you know, I, there are reasons for that, like it's subtle and it, it can be humiliating because, you know, we're sort of, the un, you know, the ongoing delusion that we've just picked up from culture is that, oh, I already know about the mind. You know, it's me. You don't. You know, I don't need to look. I know if I, if I if I used my mind to look back in on itself, I would just find me. So why would I need to do that? And to whatever degree we've actually done it and realized how little we know, it's really humiliating. It's like embarrassing. We're supposed to be the world's expert on me, but we don't really know <laughs> anything about it because we. What we know about is the thought or the idea, you know, the story we've told ourselves about me, who I am. But in terms of a direct investigation, a direct opening, yeah, it's sort of like that interesting scene in The Wizard of Oz, you know, where the wizard behind the curtain, it's like, oh, you're not supposed to look over there. We've really gotten that message. You know, you don't talk about death. You don't talk about sex, at least not in certain circles. And you don't talk about 
this reflective sense of oneself. It brings up, you know, it's defended. We feel immediately self-conscious. You probably noticed this when you started to practice mindful awareness, you know, when you started your practice. And you might have noticed, not so much during the sit, but as it just arose naturally during the day, and there was just this reflective awareness, the mind being aware that it's like this. And you might remember how disconcerting and almost maybe inappropriate it felt to be reflectively aware as you were doing whatever you were doing. Like, you know, you're going to throw me off my game. Don't don't watch me, <laughs> you know. It's like a parent, we, we have these sort of old patterns, like it's my parent watching me, you know, or oh, I'm judging myself. But it's not that at all. But it seems that way. And, it, and I think it, it, in part it's just because we have some uninvestigated thought that that real happiness, like when we think about some of these terms I get thrown around, like being in the flow, being in the groove, we have a sense of it in a way like taking that reflective awareness away. And so it's just sort of like autopilot. Oh, that was so much fun. I didn't have to think. It's not that awareness is thinking, but we associate this presence with then judging ourselves or evaluating our life in a like, oh, because I've seen what a fool I am, now I have to, or I've seen how great I am. But we feel like then we have to revise the story or something. So it's sort of a warning, you know, if being aware, being mindfully aware seems awkward or conducive of self-consciousness, it's like you can be aware of that too. It doesn't mean, you know, maybe just that self-consciousness may be more about that it's new. You know, like sometimes when things are new or novel, unfamiliar, fear can arise. It's not actually that it's scary or dangerous in any way, but we're just not used to being aware. And it's a little bit like sports and arts and a lot of our activities. We want to go right to the flow, but we think the flow means getting rid of awareness. But there may be this awkward stage where we're aware and we feel, you know, or there is an uncomfortableness because of that reflective awareness. But it might be on the way to what we've bumped into in our life where there's a clear, alert, relaxed presence and then less of the neurotic friction and reactivity and self-judgment and trying to be seen, wanting to be seen. And things just seem to be happening on their own and none of the mind is getting in its own way. Right? We like that experience. The question is, how do we move toward that experience? I think it's useful, you know, and I thought 
15th, September, and, you know, we have this deep imprint from our culture to go back to school, to be a learner, going back to the beginning. We can refresh ourselves about this, these practices that the Buddha taught, these different supports for the continuity of present moment awareness that is so central to the way the Buddha taught. And uh, I think right at the beginning, what's useful is a kind of humility about the causes for happiness. Because if we really, and I mentioned this, if you were around earlier this morning or last Wednesday, you know, it's a, like I mentioned, it's it's a little disconcerting, to be honest, that we don't know the causes for happiness. I mean, if we really understood we're a master at the causes for happiness, we'd be happy already, right? In the same way that if we knew there were, was, you know, a suitcase filled with unmarked bills in your home, you probably would have found it by now. And so if somebody like the Buddha says, you know what, unshakable, unconditioned happiness, a happiness that isn't dependent on particular conditions is available, you know, if you thought that person knew what they were talking about, you'd probably check out what they had to say. And this is what I meant about like not studying the mind, this sort of surprising lack of curiosity about the mind. It's because we basically don't think it has much to do with happiness. We think mostly, just because of our cultural conditioning, we think happiness has a lot to do with external conditions, like where we live, how people treat us, you know, what the weather's like, whether our clothes are washed and folded and put away, you know. Oh, I got these problems. So the absence of problems. But basically, one way or another, it's we have this very strong belief, it's really like a religious belief, that happiness has to do with getting our external conditions lined up. And even if we have a sense that, you know, we're, we're noticing, can't deny that my suffering is somehow internal, we still tend to blame, like if my mind's all wrapped up in a knot, I still tend to blame somebody. Well, this person did this, or this problem arose, and so now I'm obsessing about it. Yeah, I know, it's, I shouldn't be obsessing about it, but I wouldn't be obsessing about it if it weren't happening out there. So we, we have this very deep habit of externalizing both happiness and unhappiness, the causes for happiness and unhappiness. And as long as we do that, then, of course, we pursue happiness. We use our life energy to deal with external things. And so in a way, being somebody interested in spiritual life, spiritual practice, it means we've turned this corner to some degree. We've, we've found some amount of humility, like frustration and some intuition that, well, maybe it doesn't really matter whether the weather's this way or that way, or this person is this way or that way. I mean, this is a profound place for those of you in a committed relationship or a marriage it's a really powerful moment when you get to the place in the relationship where you realize 
that it doesn't make sense to blame the other person for your unhappiness or happiness. That, that your happiness or unhappiness has to be independent of who that person is, how they treat you, whether the person is the way you want, you think you want your partner to be. That it's entirely your responsibility. It's, uh, it's shocking in a way also because we don't want that responsibility. We'd rather, we'd rather continue our you know, basic pattern of blaming and having an excuse for being unhappy or being frustrated or being whatever we see ourselves as being. But to kind of start to get, like in little bits at least, that it's our responsibility that's a huge that's a huge step and but the, it's important because then we start actually getting interested in using the mind to study the mind somehow sensing that the causes of stress any kind of existential dis-ease it's not like in the fabric of the world you know like oh my god this world is so screwed up of course I'm sad. Of course I'm depressed. You know, it's, we just uh, assign the cause and as if there was like some fundamental mistake. And we justify or rationalize our unhappiness or our depression or our being ill at ease. And then we, we basically, our approach to living is, well, it's really bad, but I can just line up enough interesting experiences, you know, good books, good TV programs, good meals, and I'll get through life well enough. You know, I care about the people who aren't as fortunate to line up comfortable, pleasant experiences to distract themselves until it's all over. But that's how I can do, so that's what I'm going to do, you know, just line them up. It is. It's funny when we say it out loud, but when we actually look at our life, watch our days, the choices we make, we're basically doing that most of the time. And so what does that tell us is our underlying view. That being a being is an unsatisfactory experience. And so we're just trying to modify it as best we can. you know. And we just happen to be some of the fortunate types that have some options to be comfortable, to be left alone, to be away from noxious things, to have some interests, some passions that distract us from some of the uncomfortable facts like aging and death or loss or injustice, you know, the other suffering in the world. So the the what part of what makes this path of practice so trustworthy is it's really grounded in this basic training of being right in the middle, being intimate, being awake, being alert, being open, being sensitive, feeling what we feel, not in denial of that. It's actually totally, this path that the Buddha laid out is totally de- dependent on strengthening, strengthening these qualities of the mind to be able to be aware in a continuous way, to be sensitive, to be exposed. You know, that exposure that comes 
from being awake, feeling what we feel, seeing what we see. And, uh, and in particular, using the mind to get to know the mind. And in particular, the way the mind is relating to experience. How is this mind relating to experience? How is the mind relating to the body, for example? It's such a metaphor for how our mind relates to other experience. It's just to notice, like to track, present moment, one moment after another, to just learn to track how does the mind relate to the body. I mean, you might discover something, again, shocking, that you know you might want to answer, well, my mind isn't relating to my body. Well, that's that's a, a relevant fact. Like, oh, isn't that interesting? It's almost as shocking as I haven't really studied my mind. And then to begin, you know, as you pay attention to your day, to notice that most of the time, the way the mind is relating to the body is to be distracted, to be unaware of the body. There is a body, there are sensations in the body, but the mind is choosing to be unaware, is in the habit of being disconnected or unaware not intimate, not present, not relating with kindness or with interest, with forgiveness, with patience, but just not really dealing with it, not aware of it. And you see that that habit, like having a sensitive mind, but having learned to not be sensitive to the body, makes it clear why so much else in life the mind is just unaware of. Like that's the strategy. That's really the expression of delusion, to be having a life, to be a sensitive being, but to somehow, unconsciously or however, chosen to be unaware as our strategy to be aware or to be a living, sensitive being. It's like uh, one teacher said in terms of doubt, like using doubt, getting caught in doubt is choosing immobility as a way of transportation. You know, it's just like... And so if we're alive and we're sensitive, that a lot of our mental activity is really designed to be unaware, right, to be distracted, you see how ironic and tragic that is. Instead of really highlighting and deepening and strengthening and honoring the exposure, the sensitivity, feeling what we feel, seeing what we see, knowing what we know. We're learning, we've trained ourselves. Again, it's not personal, it's just like cultural habits, really, to be distracted, to be basically lost in thought as a very effective means of being not sensitive. We get you know, we basically, <coughs> excuse me, create little bubbles, little realities called our thoughts about things. And when we're lost in our thought about things, we're just not aware of the body, not aware of emotion, not aware of what's happening around us, not aware of what's happening, what the mind is doing. So we may be thinking, but there isn't that reflective awareness. Oh, that's just thinking. Because there's a world of difference between being, you know, thinking a thought and being lost in the content of the thought and knowing, oh yeah, that's just the mind thinking. It's just this activity of mind being known. It's really different. 
So the first step, you know, taking this time in September to reflect on our practice and, you know, why do we show up at a place like Common Ground? Why do I sit, have a meditation period in the morning? Or why why would I go on a meditation retreat? And I and I suggest that it's it's born, a lot of the times for us, it's born out of the sense of humility about not understanding the nature of the mind. I mean, recognizing the relevance that there is a mind or heart. Buddhism, mind, heart can be used as the same. There is a heart, but I haven't actually been directly interested in sort of getting to know it. Like, What does it mean to be sensitive? What does it mean to be relating to experience? How relevant is that? the kind of meaning, the, the kind of qualities of mind that are there as I'm being sensitive. What the mind is doing, making up with that sensitivity. And then once we have that humility, it, it, it's very, it's a relatively simple step to this deepening respect for awareness practice. Like the Buddha said, you know, when we are suffering, when we notice that life, it isn't easy being a human being, basically, then we do one thing, one of two things. We either complain about it, you know, he goes on and he says, beat your breast, lament, wail, right? That's one thing we do when we're suffering. But the other thing that can happen when we're suffering is we can get interested. Well, who is it that knows something about this experience of suffering? Anybody out there can give me some pointing out instructions like what to do with human life, given that it isn't easy being a human being. And what we often hear, you know, from any wise person, it doesn't have to be a Buddhist wise person, you know, get to know yourself. It doesn't mean thinking about yourself. You really have to just use this particular mental muscle, you know, that we call mindful awareness where the mind, we stabilize the awareness, almost like a mirror, a very simple, pure mirror. And what that mirror does is it just reflects what's going on. That's why if you want to memorize something, you can memorize a simple definition of the practice. We're remembering, so that's an important word to remember, remembering to recognize the present moment. Remembering, that's the muscle we're developing. The muscle that remembers to recognize it's like this now. This is being known. Because a lot, how many times today did the mind remember to recognize, oh, it's like this. This is being known. This experience of the mind thinking is being known. Or this experience of the mind worrying is being known. Or this is this experience of the hand reaching is being known. Or this experience of the hearing the sound of the bird is being known. You know, for most of us, it's not a big habit yet in the mind. This, these moments of awareness where the mind r- remembers to recognize. Oh, yeah, this is being known. This is being known. So the formal sits that we do, like in the morning or whenever it works for you sit down for half an hour or maybe some of you can do for an hour, some of you for 10 minutes, whatever it might be. 
we're just planting those seeds, right? We're creating the habit basically by, you know, just the formality of sitting still, sitting upright, sitting in a quiet place, having shut the phone off, having put the dog or cat in the other room, having told the people you live with not to bother you. Maybe you download your little insight meditation timer on your smartphone and you set the time. It's kind of a nice free app that a lot of people use. You set your time. And then what you're doing for those 30 minutes or whatever, you know, you're sitting there. And every time you catch the mind just doing what the mind always does, worrying about this, planning that, nodding off. But you now notice that then that, that's a moment of mindfulness. That's a moment where the mind remember to recognize, oh, it's like this. This is happening. This is being known, right? Not, you don't have to use those words. I'm, I do because I have to communicate with you. But you, know, you can use those words in your mind, but you don't have to say to yourself, oh, I'm remembering to recognize that this is how it is. But that's what the mind does in that moment, right? And then in that moment where you, the mind is already remembering to recognize, oh, it's like this now, you've just planted a seed, right? Because the proximate cause for being mindfully aware is being mindfully aware. That's what increases the momentum or increases the habit, strengthens the habit, moments of mindful awareness. And so when you then, you know, take up a particular training like I recommended, you know, where you're breathing in and you just take that, whatever it is, four or five, eight seconds as you're breathing in and you're training like, well, can there be this continuity of present moment awareness of the whole body as I'm breathing in? Can there be this continuity of whole body awareness as I'm breathing out? It's just a simple training like sustaining present moment awareness one half breath at a time. So, you know, for those however many seconds it takes to breathe in, it's like we're remembering to recognize whole bodies like this, whole bodies like this, whole body is just sensations being known, sensations being known. Same with the exhale, right? And then after one or two or three breaths, distraction, right? And then when we're lost in thought, can you practice? No, because we're lost in thought. But at some point, and you won't do this, right? Because you're busy being lost in thought. But at some point, because of seeds you planted before, the mind would go, oh, I'm lost in thought. In that moment, is the mind lost in thought? No. <laughs> that moment's a moment of mindfulness. So it's never appropriate, appropriate to be frustrated when you catch your mind lost in thought. Because in that moment, you're not lost in thought. That's a moment to realize, ah, you know, it's like this. This is being known. Maybe unpleasant, but it's a moment of mindful awareness. Oh yeah, this is being known. It feels like this. Disappointment feels like this, or self-judgment feels like this, or looks like this. It's just this experience of the mind or this experience of the body being known. And we planted another seed. And then it's just interesting to see, can it be sustained? For a few mind moments, this remembering to recognize it's like this now. And that's different than controlling how your lived experience unfolds, which is why we often practice what we call open attention or open awareness, where we're not immediately coming back to a meditation object, an anchor, 
like breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. That's a meditation anchor, breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. And there are many, come back to hearing, there's many different ways to use a meditation object, but generally it's good not to train your mind to have to rush back because it's almost like you're saying, you can't handle being aware of whatever's actually happening, you can only be aware of this meditation object. But that's clearly not the case. So we relax. You know, we catch the mind lost in thought. We recognize, we remember to recognize, oh yeah, it's like this now. And then either that thought will continue or fade away slowly or disappear quickly. But whatever it is, in the next moment, it's just remember to recognize, well, now it's like this. And if there's a charge, right, remember to, oh, now it feels like this. There's a feeling here too, and that's just the feeling being known. And then eventually things end. So whatever that distraction, you know, planning tomorrow, that thought will just completely end and the mind will know that, like no thought being known. It's like this, you know. And then in that sort of relative open space, the mind might just naturally be aware of your usual meditation object like whole body awareness, which is one of the meditation anchors that's quite useful because it also is supportive of daily life practice when you train your mind in your formal sitting time to have whole body awareness then that habit that skillful habit carries over when you're out in the world and it's easier for you then to sustain have more moments of mindful awareness during the day when you're not doing your formal sit but after the distraction goes away then just whatever the next predominant experience is or the attention might come back to whatever meditation anchor you've been working with, like hearing or like whole body awareness where some people feel the breath at the tip of the nose or feel the breath as a movement in the abdominal wall as it rises and falls with the breathing process. So there are many different techniques. And then eventually the mind will get distracted. can't practice when the mind's distracted because it's distracted, it's lost in thought, it's lost in some reactive pattern. But at some point, awareness will come back in. And then in that moment, the mind will be remembering to recognize, oh my gosh, it's like this. This is a moment of the body and mind being known. Whatever it is, however unpleasant or pleasant or neutral, it's an experience being known. And you really want to get that. Like, oh yeah, this is what I'm training for. This is good. Because we often tend to associate unpleasantness with doing something bad. But when there's mindful awareness and the moment is unpleasant, then the mindful awareness is a skillful and pleasant mind state. But if what the mindful awareness is mindfully aware of, if that's unpleasant, then there's also the unpleasantness of the object. So we can't assume that because the experience is unpleasant that we're not practicing well. A lot of good practice, of course, happens when things are unpleasant because we're being the mind is being mindfully aware. Oh, remembering to recognize, oh, it's like this. Sadness is like this. The pain of loss is like this. Knee pain is like this. Not liking the knee pain is also unpleasant and like this. Right? And not liking that I don't like the knee pain. Judging myself as being a bad meditator. That's a thought being known. And the judgment, the emotion of self-hatred, that's like this. 
it's unpleasant like this? Or can this be okay that it's like this now, that this is being known? Yeah, it can be okay. Even though it's unpleasant, it can be okay. And that's really, and the, and the purpose of this training, you know, coming out of humility, coming out of this intuition that the causes for my unhappiness, the stress I experience, the difficulty I have navigating my life has a lot to do with this heart, this mind, and its habits, and the unawareness. So we really take up with confidence, with growing or deepening confidence, that the continuity of mindful awareness will help. If the basic problem, like if we sense that the problem, the human, the problem of human suffering has to do with misunderstanding, then we take up this practice of mindful awareness because it's what transforms our understanding. Some of you have heard the story I told, um, I heard it a long time ago from another teacher about the farmer going to see the Buddha. And he takes a long time to track down the Buddha who's wandering about. And the farmer has an audience with the Buddha and, and basically spends a long time complaining about how hard it is to be a farmer. You know, the weather's a problem and his farm animals are problems. They don't do what they're supposed to do. And the prices, you know, or the bartering is a problem and the, you know, at the marketplace and his kids don't do their chores and the this and it just goes on and on and on. And the Buddha, being a compassionate guy, listens. And then eventually he says to him, well, you know, everybody has 83 problems. And even if somehow I could, in some clever way, get rid of one of your problems, you just get another problem anyway. And there you'd be again with 83 problems. And the farmer was obviously really frustrated and just, I couldn't believe he had spent so much time tracking this guy down to be told this. this remember, this is not a true story of the Buddha, but just a teaching story. So he stomps away. But before he was out of earshot, the Buddha said, well, I can't help you with your 83 problems, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. So the farmer turns around and says, what? What's the 84th problem? Do you know what it is? Not liking having 83 problems. Right? And that's really what this is about. This practice, this cultivation of mindful awareness, being present in a continuous way, in a non-judging way, in a clear and relaxed way, it doesn't change. Like if you have a migraine or it doesn't change, I mean, unless, you know, the causes are just something you're missing, the mindful awareness can, you know, reveal it. Like if you're clenching your jaw all day long, you know, you might notice that if you're more aware. But generally, a lot of the problems in life aren't going to change just because you have mindful awareness. But what mindful awareness will reveal is the 84th problem. It will reveal the causes and the structure of the mind having a problem with human existence, being afraid of the way that it is, being dependent on things being different. It will undermine the habit of fear and aversion and greed. 
or what we call attachment or grasping. Mindful awareness, the continuity of mindful awareness will undermine the habit of grasping. And what you'll find when you start studying the friends around you and studying your own mind, you'll see this undeniable, undeniable correlation between suffering and attachment. And just check this out in the next couple of weeks as we dig into this topic. Whenever you feel like you're suffering, that you feel burdened, weighed down in life, then just ask yourself, is there any discernible attachment present now in my life? Is my mind clinging, grasping, attached, identified to something that is somehow somehow correlates with whatever burden I feel in my heart? And you'll see. I mean, check it out for yourself. And the same thing, when you're feeling really light and responsive, unburdened, naturally loving, easeful, in the, in the great flow of things. And then you check, is there any attachment? And you'll see the mind, you'll see the correlation between the mind not being fixed, not being identified, not, being, not grasping, not attached. You'll see the correlation between what's moving, what's happening, and that absence of attachment. So the question is, well, how does the mind let, if, if you, you know, in your own study, confirm that this is in fact the case, then the question, of course, is, well, how do we abandon those habits of attachment, being identified, taking things personally, being caught up in our self-centered dramas? We pay attention. It's like, I mean, it sounds so simple, it's a little shocking again, but it's like when you're holding a hot pan, the only thing we need to do when we're holding a hot pan is we have to be paying attention enough to the fact that the holding the hot pan hurts and then letting go happens. And it's the same thing. If we have enough continuity of awareness, it will reveal that attachment hurts and letting go happens. A lot of meditators, a lot of students of the Buddhist teachings jump the gun here. They think, well, I already know that, like, I believe you, attachment's the problem. And so they go right to, like, pretending to be not attached, right? (laughs) But it doesn't work. Some of you are laughing because you know it doesn't work to pretend to be equanimous, to pretend to be not attached, because we're pretty sure the Buddha was right. We actually have to do the very difficult work of developing that stability of mind so we can have that continuity of awareness. And then with great and a surprising amount of patience. It's really amazing how much patience the practice takes. We have to be patiently aware as we observe the mind acting out its all of its attachments, its habits of grasping, its habits of struggling, its habits of taking things personally, of identifying with things. We just observe, we observe, we observe, we observe until letting go happens, until the dropping away of grasping of attachment happens. Because it's not something the self does. That's what we'd like to think. Yeah, I made the problem, I get rid of the problem. No, it won't work. That's just more attachment. Like thinking I'm going to fix this is just another kind of grasping. 
So we take up, like in a sense, the self gets to do one thing. It gets to be continuously aware in a non-judging, alert, and relaxed way, a kind way. That's all, the only thing the self gets to do. Right? And eventually even that becomes just the habit. It, isn't, it doesn't even feel like you have to do it. It just becomes more and more the habit of the mind for periods of times to be just mindfully aware. And in that mindful awareness, we practice being patient with what we see because what we see isn't pretty. Because what we see are the habits of the mind and a lot of our habits are not that skillful. You know, we're basically reptiles that have had a few million years of evolution, right? I mean, the basic brain genetic structure comes out of those little creatures in the sea and then however many millions of years, like when you look at the scope of evolution in terms of the genetic code, there have been so many, uh, like I don't know what the percentage is, but it might be, you know, 90%. It could even be 99%. You know, we were very primitive. The, the sort of genetic conditioning was these very primitive, you know, dog-eat-dog dog or not even mammals, you know, just beast-eat-beast beast, struggling, using anger and greed to kind of run the show, right? That's our condition. It's just the very last sliver where we were more refined being, you know, the mammals. And then even smaller sliver, you know, when we were more evolved as a human being, that animal where we were a little bit more reflective. So the patience it takes to watch the conditioning of the mind. Because the letting go comes from really seeing clearly that the attachment, the holding, the struggling doesn't help. So we have to wear it down with this non-judging, kind attention. And you'll see it. Like you'll be sitting here, you know, in your formal sit in the morning, and you have a little back pain, and you're kind of looking at it and you're hating it because it hurts. You know, you're grumpy, you're wanting to go away, you're maybe sort of doing some things to try to make it go away, or you're just sort of bearing down on it, just waiting to the end of the bell, or, you know. And then you're if the awareness gets a little bit more balanced, you'll see, oh, right, you're remembering to be aware that it's like this. So you're remembering to be aware, oh, this is attachment being known. And in that moment or those moments of seeing the attachment, what are you noticing? You're noticing that attachment is dysfunctional. It's not helping. It itself, like relating with attachment, itself is stressful. It doesn't, modify the pain in the back being attached to wanting to get rid of it, right? It just is a, another layer of pain on top of the ordinary pain of the aching back. So with that, with enough persistence and not judging, just being with it, then you may not be able to get rid of the back pain, but you can for sure let go of the not liking of the back pain, the attachment to the back pain. And this is, this will really, these little insights will really build your confidence in the practice. When, you know, it could be a painful memory, it could be back pain, it could be whatever it is, or ex- even being excited about a vacation or excited about something that's going to happen today. And the attachment is causing a lot of mental stress. And then the awareness reveals that. And then that stress goes away. It will really build your confidence that Attachment is the cause of suffering, 
and that the continuity of awareness, really seeing it for what it is, is the proximate cause for the attachment falling away from the mind. Each time attachment falls away and there's awareness that sees it, faith or confidence builds. This is the way. This is the way. This is why the Buddha taught this. This is why these teachings have been around for so long, 2,500 years. It works. This is what remains in the mind, this very deep sense. This practice actually works. You know, it's like you see, if a little of this works, a lot of this will work. Right? If I am more persistent, more clearly aware, more relaxed, I'll catch how attachment, identification, taking things personally is working on more subtle levels of the mind. I'll see it. I'll be patient. It will fall away. Attachment, no person being fully aware, clearly aware, chooses to be attached. Right? Because it's so clearly not helpful when you see your mind being attached. Like when you're enraged, angry about someone, you've been, if you see that clearly, you don't keep feeding the anger. It may take a while for it to unwind if it's got a head of steam because you've been obsessing for you know 15 minutes or 10 hours or whatever it's been. But it will go away because the neurotic habits all of which involve attachment, some kind of identification, they depend on ignorance, not being aware. Because no mind engages these psychological patterns in the full light of day. We only do it when the mind is unaware. They only make sense when the mind is unaware. This is how this is one of the telltale ways you can recognize unskillful habits of mind because when you're clearly aware that balanced, continuous awareness, those unskillful habits weaken. But if you're clearly aware of wholesome qualities like a general pervasive sense of kindness or a general pervasive sense of generosity, those qualities get stabilized, they get stronger when there's awareness, right? Because they work. They're a cause for happiness. There's nothing undermining it. The mind, in being mindfully aware, just sees like, oh, that's a very functional way to be relating as I move through my life in the spirit of generosity, in the spirit of kindness, the attitude of equanimity, the value of calm. These wholesome qualities of mind just get stronger without you trying to pretend to be calm or equanimous or kind. They just show up and become more stable, more the character or or, uh, habit of the mind when we're more mindfully aware. And this is really nice. That just means we have to develop only one quality, the continuity of mindful awareness. Because as the Buddha says, all the good friends, all the other wholesome qualities start to gather around, start to show up when there's the continuity of awareness. So we have a little bit of time maybe seven minutes or so, just enough to hear from a few people, your own experience in life. We ask people to stay all the way through the sharings just as uh, out of respect for folks. I think your head bumped one of the light switches, the top one. They should be both about halfway up, the top two. So just up a little bit more. Thanks.
So anybody want to begin? Yeah, Kermit, all the way in the back here. I have a couple of hindrances that um, really beat me up when I'm sitting here. And I think they're related because they always come together in the same order. And here's here's what happens. I get the torpor thing where I just, you know, nod out, fall asleep. And then suddenly I'm awake and I just have like this, just this super restlessness. And, you know, my heart's racing and I'm just really really wound up and if everybody weren't sitting here with me I would probably get up and leave so I don't know are there what's the is there an attachment there I'm not seeing it I'll I'll sit here for the remainder of the sit and just you know and Mm -hmm. this is what's being known and you know all that stuff but it's it's kind of miserable yeah but anyway (laughs) but because it's miserable doesn't mean you're not learning anything And, you know, in the nodding off stuff, there may not be enough awareness to even see that. But one of the advantages of really difficult experiences, uh, you know, an unpleasant experience is it tends to wake the mind up, right? So in that restless, unpleasant restlessness, then if you can appreciate that the mind, in moments at least, can be clearly aware of it, and just acknowledge yourself, because it might evoke a really beautiful compassion, Oh, this is really unpleasant. So the key when something is unpleasant, the experience is actually turns out to be less relevant than the fact that the mind sees it as being unpleasant. So go right to that fact of what's happening in the present moment. Not the restlessness, but that it's unpleasant. And so just acknowledging that, whether you do it in words or just silently with awareness, this is unpleasantness being known. This is unpleasant, and it's being known. It's just this unpleasant feeling being known. Can this be okay? Is it safe? And just check. Is it safe to relax, to allow this very unpleasant restlessness to be the way it is? Because to not like it, you'll see, like if you slide into that habit of like wanting to get out of it, wanting to get rid of it, that just amplifies the unpleasantness. It doesn't make it less unpleasant. So that's, that's kind of where the learning is. That's the curriculum, to see what amplifies the unpleasantness. And you'll see over and over again that a direct and honest and kind and intimate relationship with the unpleasantness is always less uh, oppressive than needing to get away from it. And then it is okay, it's absolutely okay, like when you're there with it, honestly, in a relaxed way for a few moments, it's totally okay then to like open your eyes and be aware of hearing, something neutral, right? Okay, so I call that like touch and go. Turn towards what's really unpleasant, have an authentic, relaxed, clear, kind, intimate moment with it. And then even though this still may be the restless, the yuckiness of the restless, it may still be the predominant experience, just open to something else for a moment or two and go back and forth. And maybe even have to turn away from it completely. But then you know you're turning away from it. What else? You can even ask yourself this. What else can the mind know in the present moment at this time? Yeah. Or just go to compassion. You know what? It's not easy being a human being. 
I care about this life. So now you're thinking that the thinking itself and the attitude that the thinking is pointing to, the attitude of compassion, kindness, is the object of meditation. And the words like, I care about this life, or may this heart be at ease with this unpleasant, these unpleasant circumstances, that those words point to an attitude we call love or compassion, right? So that can be the meditation to hold that attitude, to sustain that attitude of compassion. Yeah, thanks, Kermit. Time for one more comment or question. Anything else come up? Yeah, please, Donna. It's difficult for me uh, not to think about um, people who to me seem to be trapped in genuinely uh, painful and difficult, uh, abusive circumstances uh, in relationships, for instance, or um, children, you know. Um, and we're some of those people. I mean, all of us are that person in moments. At, at times, but I, to me, it just seems like, you know, I lead a pretty privileged life. I mean, I would say 90% of my suffering is self-inflicted at the very least, maybe 99%. Mm-hmm. But that's not I true see. of everybody. And so um, it's hard for me to know how to think about that, you know. But when you think about that, right, then just know that you're thinking about that. And if there's a feeling that arises in your heart when you think about that, like that people are suffering, when there's, if there's a feeling, then know that there's that feeling. Because this is for you to check out. What happens when you train your mind to be mindfully aware? You might find that a very natural and beautiful uh, attitude of compassion arises. Now, compassion is a very interesting emotion or attitude because on the one hand, it's really wholesome, it's beautiful. But on the other hand, the cause for compassion to arise is your willingness to whatever degree to see clearly the suffering of other people or the suffering in your own life, right? So it seems a little paradoxical that when I allow myself to honestly recognize, acknowledge the suffering in somebody's life, the suffering in my own life, then this beautiful, wholesome attitude of mine arises called compassion. It, I guess it just, the thing that's hard for me um, is I wonder if you would present this presentation to a room full of slaves. I mean, well, I think what would be the, a better way? What would be a better teaching for them? I, I don't know. It's not what I do for a living. Um, all I'm saying is, I think of the Buddha's teachings as being universally applicable. And so, when I run into something like this, where I think, mm, you know, <laughs> but there are people in dreadful circumstances. There are quite a lot of them in the world, yeah. you know. But even like, how would one uh, who's you know getting up there in, in the world in age deal with death, right? Because that's an oppressive situation for most of us, the fact that we get older, the body gets weaker, and then dies. So how do we relate to that? Or even those people who are in really difficult circumstances, whether it's racism or economic injustice or in the middle of one of these natural disasters and losing a lot of what they've spent life, you know, many years putting together or just facing a lot of insecurity right now. And uh, because we have this capacity to empathize. <clears throat> so in a way, we're 
tuning into their suffering. This is the cause for compassion. Doing that is what they also need to do and what we need to do when we're that person. Right? We need to see the very truth, this is difficult right now for me. This really hurts. There's this experience of fear and it's really unpleasant. This experience of vulnerability or insecurity is really unpleasant. Right, So to honestly acknowledge that can only help us see what's next, do what's next. That honest, relatively honest acknowledgement of what's arising. And ba- the basic presumption that it's workable. Like even if we're about to die, you know, we're in a natural disaster and we're about to die, it still makes sense to be mindful. When would it not make sense to be mindfully aware? So this is not just for privileged people, but I think maybe your point is it's a lot easier for privileged people to do this practice. And that's absolutely true. In the same way that if you have a lot of physical pain, it's not so easy to practice. So maybe you should practice lying down, but for shorter periods of time. Or practice walking if there's less pain in your body when you're walking than when you're sitting. right? Or just doing whatever works. So Absolutely that people who are overwhelmed by physical, mental, emotional suffering have a harder time developing the momentum in practice, which is all the more reason to start developing the momentum when our life situation is relatively stable. Yeah, And there are probably people nodding in this room because they're in the middle of a more intense time. They have cancer or their job loss or their a relationship is breaking up and they're one of those people or they're you know being oppressed in some way or you know there are stories in our community of people who have exactly what you're pointing to it's not they're never far away those people who have difficult circumstances thanks for bringing that up Donna really important point let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words a few seconds of silence together Thanks again for coming tonight, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.